26 years is a long time. The first conference of the parties, the UN Climate Change Conference, was in 1995. More than a thousand delegates have gathered in Berlin for the conference. Many delegates believe global warming is potentially catastrophic. The US and Canada are the countries most guilty of carbon dioxide pollution. Neither country believes a global catastrophe is imminent. Today, many feel the global catastrophe is here. And some of the loudest voices calling for action come from people too young to have any memory of that first conference or of a world without climate crisis. Why aren't you making bold changes to tackle this problem? It's only getting worse. We have so far had 25 cops and they were full of empty promises. I simply cannot imagine a world worse than this. Young people may not be the first ones to feel anxiety about climate change, but they seem to be hardest hit by its effects. So as COP26 continues, we're sharing the mic with them, and we found not just climate anxiety, but rage. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today, we're hearing from young climate activists around the world, as well as a researcher on youth and climate change. Blanche Furley is at the University of Sydney, and she's the author of the book, Learning to Live with Climate Change. I wanted to start with that one term, climate anxiety, and how it affects young people most. The way that I approach climate anxiety is understanding it as a a sense that your world is ending and it's different to a sense that the world is ending. We all know this feeling, the guilt when we see the starving polar bears or the creeping dread when we hear about the latest wildfires. Extreme weather has worried most people on planet Earth and the most frightened of all are younger generations. It's possible that people of all ages can be anxious about climate change, but the young people, it's really a sense of, I can't imagine what world I'm going to grow up in. I can't see how these things that you've told us that we're supposed to do, like get a good education and get a job and start a family, I can't see how that is a realistic future for me. So. It can really be experienced as a very visceral, everyday panic that undermines young people's ability to go about their everyday lives. And the numbers back up how widespread a phenomenon this is. The scientific journal Lancet Planetary Health released a survey this year of 10,000 young people from 10 countries. It included Australia, India, Nigeria, and the Philippines. It found nearly 60% say they're very worried about climate change. 45% said their worries impact their daily life. The exciting thing is that now that we have, you know, thanks to some other fantastic researchers, we have the evidence to show that is happening systematically around the world. I think previously we thought maybe it was just, you know, rich white kids who had nothing else to worry about. So I'm really grateful to those researchers for showing that it's it's not this sort of privileged condition, but in fact it's even more exacerbated for young people from marginalised backgrounds and around the world. 
We heard from a few of them. Some are in Glasgow now for COP. All of them were born after carbon dioxide in the atmosphere passed 350 parts per million. That's the threshold that's considered normal for life on Earth. Hello everybody, my name is Atlas Sarafolo. I'm a climate justice activist from Turkey. And at the moment I am 14 years old. My name is Lina Niedegen, I'm 24 years old, I'm from Germany. Greetings, my name is Evelyn Acham, I'm a climate activist from Uganda. My name is Jennifer Uchenjo, I'm the founder of Susti Vibes, the youth-led organization making sustainability actionable in Nigeria. Most of the young people who spoke to us had experienced climate disasters that directly impacted them or their families. Evelyn is from eastern Uganda, which has faced dire droughts. I've seen people suffer from famine, from hunger, because water sources have dried up, food sources have dried up. I've seen people look for wild rats to feed on because they don't have food to eat. Locusts have eaten up people's crops. In Uganda, the government says five and a half million people are battling food shortages. Uganda's traditionally regarded as a breadbasket for the entire region. And when I found out that this is climate change and it's affecting me directly, I saw an urgency to start fighting for this. Atlas, from Turkey, was in the middle of this summer's wildfires. These are the worst fires in at least a decade in Turkey, with the whole of the Mediterranean suffering higher than normal temperatures. We went to southern Turkey and the next day, the fires broke out. They were close enough for us to see the heavy smoke blowing our way. And it was a big chaos because people were being evacuated and there were no enough planes to fly out of the city. And we went to bed uh, every night thinking if the fires would start while we were asleep. I used to check the heat in the midnight and it would be 34 degrees. It was scary. In Germany, Lena's hometown was devastated by floods. Germany is witnessing once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-millennium floods. Roads turned into rivers. Vehicles swept away like toys. Swaths of land buried under thick mud. I was personally really, really scared when the floods happened this summer because it was in my hometown. My grandma lost her house. My family had to be evacuated with the military, which was really scary. And there was the first time where I actually felt really anxious for my family and for the future. But she said the scariest part for her was the response from the government. Like we know there's no plan right now of the governments to limit the climate crisis, but it's also that they have no clue on how to respond to a climate catastrophe, even in a country that is highly industrialized and rich like Germany. So, um, yeah, this was just a confirmation of what I was already expecting of, yeah, climate helplessness of the leaders, the so-called world leaders. That frustration with governments that Lena felt is something that's shared by a huge number of young people around the world. In this year's climate anxiety survey, almost two-thirds said that not only are governments failing young people on climate, they also feel governments are lying about the impact of actions that have been taken none of which bodes well for COP26. 
While the heads of state congregated at COP, some are still to be convinced their actions will meet their rhetoric. 90 countries have signed the Global Methane Pledge, which requires a 30% cut in methane emissions by 2030. There are question marks over whether the promise to cut methane by 30% this decade can be delivered. A landmark commitment to save the planet's forests from being destroyed is signed by 100 world leaders. Some of this conference question how well the deforestation pledges can be pleased. In the meantime, the number one call that humans have to cut net emissions in half by 2030 and to zero by 2050 is still out of reach. Just last week, despite all the countries that did agree to phase out coal, the world's top emitters were not among them. And that mismatch from privileged countries is something Jennifer Uchendu, who we just heard from, has seen play out as a Nigerian who studied climate anxiety in the UK. I do know that um, it's not something I need to pathologize. It's not a problem, but it's, however, a healthy response to the climate crisis. Everyone should be concerned. Everyone should be worried. But then whichever position you stand within the world in terms of power and privilege would also determine how your response would be. Jennifer started comparing climate anxiety in the UK to her own. I started to speak to youth climate activists that were based in the UK, and I saw that there were discrepancies in the sense that they felt um, things like fear, they felt shame, they felt guilt, but I felt more of overwhelm, powerlessness and anger because I'm on the side of the world where Um, My people are really vulnerable to the effects of climate crisis. Without action, the conditions for living on Earth will get worse. By 2050, pollution may be so bad, there might not be fresh air to breathe. Blanche in Australia lived through what many called a warning of what's to come as the climate changes. The devastating fires of 2019 and 2020. 186,000 square kilometers were burned, and some one billion animals were killed. For me, it involved finding charred whole leaves in my backyard, and I live in the center of a a city of five million people, quite away from the, the forests, and knowing that huge forests, huge amounts of land were burning and that that ash was raining down all around us. I had friends who said they took their kids to the beach and saw other kids playing games trying to see who could catch the most ash. You know, if you went for a swim, you'd come out covered in black soot. It was just really distressing, even in the places that were really far from the fires. And Blanche says there wasn't much time from when the rains doused those fires to the first cases of the coronavirus. It's so strange to think back to that time now because there was this real, like, political momentum building in response to those fires and then with lockdowns and the new wave of panic about the coronavirus. It really, to be honest, has filtered out. I don't think people's frustrations and worries have dissipated, but I think they've been suppressed since then. You've experienced a lot of youth climate anxiety firsthand through the university class that you teach. You are a climate change educator. So what are some of the experiences that you can share? 
when I started teaching a course that was specifically focused on climate change, I really noticed that the emotional intensity of the classes was really amplified. The way that that shows up can be things like students telling you that they've chosen a boring assignment because they can't emotionally invest in one that they really care about. So for example, our students were given the the option to choose their own case study for their assignments. So one would say, I'm going to focus on the wine industry because it's people's livelihoods, but if we run out of wine, that's okay. I can't really, I can't really face dealing with issues like climate displaced people or, or something like that. It can also be more apparent in the sense of students crying or being upset in class, leaving the classroom. There is this challenge of having to support students just to be able to emotionally keep doing that academic work because they know that it's not just this abstract thing that's happening somewhere else to some other people, but that it also really dramatically affects their lives as well. It's not just education that's affected. Young people surveyed said that climate anxiety also affects how they sleep, how they eat, and how they have fun. Four out of 10 said they're hesitant to have children. And the people we spoke to all said their futures have already been affected. Will I not have a family? Will I be able to survive through the climate crisis disasters? And um, will I have to immigrate somewhere else, more habitable? These questions are always on my mind. I cannot make any plans about my future. All I can do is do my best with schoolwork and then I'll see what I want to do. Personally, I should be planning to do my master's right now or thinking about settling down. I'm not giving time to my family, to my siblings because I'm busy advocating for climate justice. Young people are not only mentally distracted by worries about climate change, they're also more likely to be harmed by it now. Children are less likely to survive extreme weather events, and their education is often at risk of disruption. One billion children live in the 33 countries that the UN considers at extremely high risk from climate change. Those countries are responsible for just 9% of global emissions. So Blanche, finally, the name of your book is Learning to Live with Climate Change. How do we do it? I'm hoping you have the answers there. Yeah, no, (laughs) I don't know if I have answers, but I guess as far as I know, the best things that we can do about it is firstly to talk to other people. It's really common for people who are experiencing climate anxiety to also feel really isolated and lonely, and that can really compound those experiences. Relatedly, we know that if we want to address climate change, we need to engage in collective action. A lot of research is showing that these painful feelings are fantastic motivation for taking collective action, and that taking collective action can also help address them. So, It seems like a real win-win that taking action can both help us feel better and also address the problem. And so that, I think, helps explain why, for example, the school strikes for climate have been taken up so extensively by young people around the world. That focus on collective action is really important because aside from anxiety, one of the most common feelings is powerlessness. 
and researchers say media coverage may contribute to that. Atlas in Turkey and Evelyn in Uganda have both continued their own school strikes, even when they face backlash. Evelyn said she had to cut down on her strikes in person because it was dangerous. Atlas said he had a complaint to Turkey's education ministry filed against him, though he was ultimately pardoned. It's a reminder of the stakes of everyone doing their part to fight for climate action. Because as Blanche says, many people cannot just adapt. We can't all learn to live with climate change. We know that climate change is already killing people around the world, and that's most especially true in, you know, the most disadvantaged countries. You know, climate change isn't something we can just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get on with. For some people, it is it is really world-ending. And, and that's why, you know, people like me in privileged high-carbon countries have a really important role to play in, in holding our political leaders to account, you know, for ourselves, for our children, for all the non-humans on this planet and for people who, who have less capacity to affect the power holders in the really privileged countries. One message all the young people we spoke to had was simple. Leaders at COP and older generations need to listen. This is Jennifer from Nigeria, who's at COP now. Someone was asking me just recently, like, do people listen to each other at COP? Or is it just a lot of talking back at each other? I think for a very long time, there's been a lot of talking back at each other and not pausing to stop, you know, and listen and reflect. What is this person saying? Um, is it possible that, you know, this crisis impacts people way differently than it does to me. So world leaders need to put their body where their mouth is. But beyond that, I think listening, listening goes a long way because it, it drives that idea of empathy and you start to realize that um, a lot more needs to be done. This is no longer a scientific discussion. More people need help. This is from Atlas in Turkey. Now is the time to take action. If 1.1 degrees is the reason that we are facing these many and uh, damaging disasters, imagine a world with 3 degrees heating. Your children will not be able to survive in a world you decided to create. Here's Evelyn from Uganda. I would like the older generation and the leaders at COP to understand that the young people have had enough of disasters. It's so sad that in this COP26, we have not seen any meaningful decisions. The leaders have not talked about stopping investments in any new fossil fuels or approving any new fossil fuel projects. Why can't they stop that? And Lena from Germany. My message to their so-called leaders at COP would be that they should listen to the people who are actually fighting at the front lines of the climate crisis since decades, since colonialism, and then they would see who are the actual leaders at climate justice, and these people should be taking the seat at COP. We know the actual leaders are outside, are on the streets, are fighting together in the communities or now today in the streets of Glasgow. And that's The Take. On Wednesday, we'll keep digging into COP26. A lot of money is at stake, and poorer countries say it's time for the big carbon economies to pay up. 
Today's episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Priyanka Tilbe, Ruby Zaman, Nagin Oliai, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is the sound designer. Tom Fenton is our story editor. Aya El-Milek is the engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is executive producer. Special thanks to Avaz and to the WHO's Partnership for Maternal, Newborn, and Child Health. We'll be back. <laughs> 